this talk, the paper I'm going to put in uh, the journal, is going to try to uh, condense a couple arguments in my second book into a way that's applicable for uh, practitioners uh, in the field who are trying to judge apologies in criminal contexts. Uh, so you got a little bit of an overview of some of the arguments from the first book yesterday. Uh, the second book, there is one core argument uh, that takes a lot of work, and I'm not going to go over it here, but just to summarize it, according to the argument, justice through apologies, all major theories of punishment, consequentialist, restorative, leftist, and retributive theories in particular, should typically endorse apology reductions only if offenders demonstrate moral transformation by satisfying rigorous standards for apologies. So, so a little bit of what, when I say rigorous standards, I really mean rigorous standards. I have a very thick conception of what I call categorical apologies. If offenders do something like that, I argue, they should receive some reduction in punishment. And I claim that this is true across all major theories of punishment. So pretty much anyone who's in the punishment game, I think, should advocate for something like apology reductions. For some theories of punishment, you, you can see where that might be obvious, right? Like rehabilitative theories, okay, if someone is given something like a categorical apology on the rehabilitative theory, a lot of the work has kind of already been done, right? So it would make sense to uh, give them some credit for that. Retributive theory, how would that work? That would seem to be one of the hardest cells. I argue for a couple reasons that it's just worth uh, pointing out. If you're getting something like a categorical apology, there's already a good deal of hard treatment built in. There's already some pain and suffering built in. I argue that offenders should get some kind of credit for that. Um, I also argue that um, issues of consistency and proportionality are particularly important to retributivists. And I am attempting to make it so that in sentencing, like apologies, get like treatment, right? Just like sort of similar offenses get similar treatment, similar kinds of apologies get similar treatment. And there's all sorts of ways that we don't do this right now. And I'm happy to talk about or answer questions about how do I, how do I make the argument for consequentialists. Leftists have a very interesting case, um, but that's a lot of the work that got done. But you think of criminal sentencing in the United States in particular, and I like to draw from this guy. <laughs> so I actually first studied these guidelines with Marcus uh, in, in the mid-90s. And I think this is, you know, Marcus at his finest, this quote here, it really gives you a sense for, as he says, modern penal institutions, offenders, are, offenders and victims alike are treated as irrelevant nuisances, grains of sand in the great machine of state risk management. And, and we all sort of know this is true, particularly in the United States, right? We have a, a massive penal system, largely driven by drug laws. And given just the amount of bodies being processed, when you start talking about the highly nuanced notions of apologies and remorse that I'm interested in, trying to imagine how there would be a time and a place for the sort of not only evaluations of apologies I'm considering, but you know, the work that an offender would need to do to merit 
an apology reduction. Right? It almost looks like an impossible fit. Right? It's a very difficult fit to imagine that kind of moral transformation given the way sort of just the, the size and the case management of modern penal institutions are. Right? So how does it usually work? How does it currently work? Because right? we all know that remorse plays an important role. We talk about remorseless and remorseful offenders in criminal sentencing. A few ways that this goes on now. Right? In, in most criminal cases, there is either an implicit or an explicit finding, judgment, determination of remorseful attitudes or not. Okay. It's usually made, these determinations of, all right, is this offender remorseful or not? This is usually made on the fly at many levels of the process, right? And this can uh, be all the way from you know, uh, police stops on the road, sort of on the street, and they find someone doing something illegal, and they talk to them for a second and think, okay, you're, you look like you're sorry, don't do it again. Right? All the way through right, parole, probation, etc., right, post-release. Right? There's all sorts of cases, situations within the criminal justice system where various state agents make discretionary judgments about offender remorse mental states. Yeah. And they do it largely from their gut. They wing it. Yeah, sort of like, mm. yeah, do you hit the right notes? Do you sound apologetic? Are you uh, doing what I, as say a police officer, think looks like remorse? And as you can predict, uh, this is problematic in all sorts of ways. Right? It invites uh, discrimination on all sorts of levels. It's going to be um, highly imprecise. It's going to you know, not treat people equally, fairly. Certainly, uh, uh, rich offenders are going to get a different kind of treatment, typically, than poor offenders. People who don't um, speak the language or sort of hit the right notes or aren't sort of um, uh, educated and present properly as judges or whoever that should think offenders should present are going to have their remorse discounted. Uh, we expect judges, police, etc., to, to know it when they see it, right? And right, they don't really have training in this sort of stuff, right? They haven't come to a workshop like this. I mean, even people who study this, we're not even quite sure what we're talking about when it comes to apologies and remorse. It's, it's very complex. So you imagine someone like boots on the ground trying to make these determinations. They don't have a lot of, uh, of guidance. Also, their judgments about who is remorseful are typically unappealable. Uh, at various stages, either because there's just there's no appellate process or there's a high degree of deference to sort of the, the previous reviewer. At various stages, this goes on. So you have this unappealable gut reaction, know it when you see it. In the United States, in particular, you have a couple other features that just mess with the whole situation. Right? We have a system largely, a criminal system, built around plea bargaining. Something like 90 to 95% of criminal convictions result from guilty pleas rather than jury trials. So this is going to structure how the process uh, unfolds. And it's going to structure it in conjunction with the federal sentencing guidelines. So this is one of the more, there's lots of perverse things in the United States penal justice system. 
this aspect of the sentencing guidelines is perhaps one of the uh, craziest. So there is a provision, section 3E1.1, that allows for something like a 30 to 35% reduction in punishment when the offender accepts responsibility, and they define the terms here. All right, so you have this provision in the code, and it looks like, okay, here's an apology-friendly provision in the sentencing guidelines. The sentencing guidelines are, in fact, trying to uh, give credit for remorse. Uh, it was initially read as something of a uh, remorse provision to try to uh, codify and standardize how remorse gets treated. So it looked like, okay, they're sort of doing the right thing to clarify and get proportionality. Uh, in fact, what has happened on the ground is that when these, uh, when this provision gets interpreted, acceptance of responsibility is now effectively equal to accepting a plea. If you accept a plea, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you have accepted responsibility. If you accept a plea, accept responsibility, you will get this reduction. So, as you all know, please go down. You could be, you know, any number of things could be presented to you as a plea offer. Some of them could have right little correlation to what you think you've actually done, but you think accepting the plea might be in your interest. And frankly, right, in many criminal cases, the offenders are uh, poorly advised right, to accept the plea, they could think they're um, completely innocent, they have not even, they don't even know what they're talking about, you could be innocent, but still it might be a better strategic move to just accept the plea rather than face the risks of going to trial, right, I mean this is a power, powerful prosecutorial device to, right, threaten higher punishments in order to get a right, plea accepted. Right. So you could think of yourself as completely innocent accept the plea, be determined remorseful, and receive the reduction according to the guidelines. Right? So there's, I have a couple chapters on the technicalities of this and how it works, how it breaks down in practice, but it's a, it's a really perverse uh, aspect of the guidelines. So what uh, I've tried to do is, so you've, you're familiar with these, we went through them a little bit yesterday, is what my project in this last book is, is to try to get a set of guidelines for various state officials in the process right, to evaluate offender remorse. Right. So you can see how, you, you can imagine how these would map on and you can right, find various places where I've unpacked how these, how these shake down. There's lots of uh, very specific things to criminal context, how these sorts of things play out. One interesting and I think perhaps the most important thing, uh, reform and redress. If an offender is supposed to get some kind of moral credit right, for remorse, and if remorse has something to do with not reoffending, right, if you are, uh, for instance, uh, at a sentencing hearing, and a judge is supposed to determine the extent of your remorse. And they're supposed to make that judgment at that particular moment. Right? This creates a real sort of temporal problem 
for sentencing because, in my view, it's very difficult to judge the quality of an apology until sometime down the road, right? You know, like, all right, you haven't reoffended, you've provided redress, you've done all these things, you're, right, you've, uh, you've gained credibility as time goes. Uh, this is very problematic for a justice system, especially in its current form. So I offer various kinds of advice for how to evaluate the apologies, the temporal aspects, where the temporal aspects are best placed. I also try to uh, describe who should be doing this evaluation, how to standardize, formalize, how to remove a lot of the, the biases in the process of evaluating remorse, and to try to give um, you know, uh, a way that we can take remorse seriously within the justice system that doesn't look like this sort of cynical, perverted uh, you know, way to massage uh, you know, remorse and plea bargaining into this uh, clearly contrary to the spirit of the of, uh, why we should be giving apology reductions. I'm at 13 minutes, so I'm going to stop. Uh, but I think you know we can talk about any of these aspects, but I can also go on forever, so I'm going to stop. Thank you. <laughs>